The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, pick up your assembly by the bootstraps and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 172 with guest Bob Boschman, recorded live Friday, April 14, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.telerik. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who will never again buy a coffee maker endorsed by the Prince of Podcasting, Carl Franklin. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you're listening to Carl and Richard again on .NET Rocks. What the heck episode is this, Richard? 172. I can always count on you for the episode number, man. It's nice to be able to just show up to work, fall into the booth, and do my job. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, we're we're all feeling organized today. Got everything together. Got the new sound booths going. It's cool. Yeah, I'm I'm in a new sound booth at Pop Studios. We just put three of them in, and uh, it's kind of nice. It's nice in here. I feel real now. You know, got a nice big window to look out. Got a microphone. Got a fan. Got connectivity. What else do you need? How about some email? Some email would be great. And all our email is around DNR TV this week. First one. Really? Yeah. 
First one. Hi, Carl and Richard. Firstly, thanks for the great show. Definitely the best tech podcast I listen to. But I'll cut to the chase. A while ago, I believe you did a DNR on SQL Server 2005 and OLAP with the whole cube thing. Now, I've always had an interest in this, but alas, have never had the opportunity to investigate. I actually now have a copy of the developer edition of SQL Server 2005, and I'm frantically trying to figure this out. Alas, without much luck. He loves that word, alas. <laughs> you notice that's just one L away from something really bad. I can't seem to get it to deploy. I'm wondering whether I should be running on Win 2003 or something, XP Pro currently. Anyway, I thought it'd be an excellent DNR TV episode just to run through the basics of setting up a cube and pulling out some wondrous statistics. And definitely an episode on how to get some cool stuff working would be brilliant. Thanks, Carl, and keep up the good work. Dan Swain, London, UK. Cool. That yeah. was uh, Andrew Brust back in December. Yeah. We did that show on business intelligence and OLAP. Maybe we should bring him back and get him to do a DNR TV. I'm thinking that would be great. And the next email is not so, not so bullish, but he has some good constructive criticism. Hi there. Very good programming. Excellent job. However, the TDD DNR TV is really, really bad. Please ask someone more mature to do this, unless, of course, you have an agenda against TDD. It's simply not fair to present test-driven development in such a way. This guy is definitely smart. However, he is also too green. Frankly, as an introduction for the masses, how can you test things so close to the UI? Also, mock stuff is really not for mass consumption, for an introduction. Uh, mock is needed only in 10% of things. Test-driven development is simple. It is simply just doing unit testing for business logic. For .NET, all practical purposes, it is n-unit or derivatives. Nothing more. However, this guy makes it unnecessarily difficult and confusing. Now, I know why Rocky has the idea to not confuse testing with TDD. Certainly do not confuse TDD with some kids' TDD. Ooh, strong words. I feel you should invite really mature and moderate TDD guys to do another one. Otherwise, it is really not fair and will mislead people. Okay. Well, that's good constructive criticism. We got another email, same day, I think. Carl, I just finished watching Jean-Paul Boudou's presentation on test-driven development, and I thought I'd respond to your request for feedback. I am an avid listener of DNR TV, and I want to let you know how much I appreciate your efforts. DNR TV is just awesome. I've learned so much about .NET through watching DNR TV. There is simply no substitute for watching a programmer actually code something out in real time in listening to the comments. You do a great job as an interviewer, too. Anyway, it sure would be fun to sit around with the crew and watch DNR, but I watch alone so I can concentrate and rewind for key points, etc. DNR has become my secret to success. Keep up the good work. So, there you have it. A little of this, a little of that. People like DNR TV overall. I think it's, I think it's flying. Well, I'm excited that the, that the test-driven development topic generated so much interest. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's a significant issue. Yeah, me too. And of course, if you have any comments for us, send them along with a uh, check for $100,000 to uh, .NET Rocks at franklins.net, <laughs> and uh, we'll, be, we'll be glad to check them out. We always want to hear from you, good or bad. So, our guest today is Bob Boschman, and he's a Director of Developer Skills for SQL Skills. 
He is a database-centric application practitioner and architect, instructor, course author, writer, etc., and has worked with computers since 1977. He's been an application developer in DBA with relational databases like SQL Server, Oracle, Sybase, and DB2, as well as non-relational databases, including IMSDB, IDMS, and others. Over the past two years, he's been teaching his SQL Server 2005 course to Premier customers and Microsoft personnel worldwide through the SQL Server 2005 Ascend program. He's provided SQL Server 2005 training to over 500 developers through this program. His latest book is Programmer's Guide to SQL Server 2005. Welcome, Bob. Thanks. Glad you could be on the show. Good, good. You can I, have me. I remember that training, Bob, back at the uh, Evangelism Airlift in, what was it, August of 2004? Long time oh, ago. yeah. That was the one day worth of training that was supposed to go till about 6 or 8 and ended up going till 10 and people were still wanting more. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it, it was really a week's worth of content crammed yeah. into a day. Yeah, that's the way I tend to do, though. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, you know, as long as people can keep up. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you've been in the business a long time. Yeah, it, I'm getting old. Yep, geezer. As long as Richard or longer? We're all getting old. I, I, I mentioned that before the show started. We were looking over the bio that yeah, the first time I laid hands on a microcomputer was 1977 as well. Oh, wow. But uh, I'm a bit younger than Bob. I started earlier. Okay. Yep, that's true. Yep. So SQL Server 2005 seems to be your thing. Oh, right now it's pretty much all I'm doing. All I used doing. to do other things like teach.net, teach ASP.net, ADO.net, but now it just seems to be all SQL Server all the time. Didn't you used to be with Developmentor? Yes, I was. I was with Developmentor for about six or seven years, and I started out with them by teaching MTS and OADB provider writing. And I sort of tucked them into um, having a SQL Server course one day, and it sort of took off from there. So about this wow. point, this is pretty much all I do. Bob, if you if you had just one argument to make for moving from SQL Server 2000 to 2005, what did it be? Just one. I only get one. Just one. If I had one <laughs> argument, I'm taught. We'll go into others, but let's say the the killer thing. Okay. Well, there's quite a few killer things in in 2005, but the one that people are you know kind of surprised at because it sort of snuck in there yeah. was snapshot isolation, the okay. ability to have isolation that works by means of versioning rather than by means of locking. Yeah. And you right. Can have, you can have versioning or locking or both if you want. And they actually use that to, to uh, have a bunch of new features that work because of that, like um, online index rebuild, for example. So that's the one that people always forget when they talk about the neat glitzy ones like .NET or you know, XML support or um, Service Broker, those things. They forget about the, the basics. So well, and it's a it's a, such a huge issue you're you're touching against there. Yeah, let's. You need to replace indexes every so often. There's no two ways around it. And it used to be that you basically lock the entire table while that's happening. Mm-hmm. And yep. a twenty four seven system that's not acceptable. And this is yep. stuff that just happens by default, the locking, or is this stuff that you have to do manually? Oh no! Well, the locking happens by default, but right. to change things from locking to versioning, you actually have to make a conscious decision to do that and actually set set things in the database to be able to make it happen. It wouldn't it wouldn't do to have things just change over automatically. Right. Because it could break all the existing applications. Sure, you the have. I- the idea is to give the you more control over what gets locked and when, right? 
sure, exactly. And this is a debate that's been going on since the beginning of the relational database. Is it better to have isolation using locking, or is it better to have isolation using versioning? Yeah. And so now SQL Server doesn't have to worry about that debate. They can do either one, and you can choose which one is best for you. And the difference is, I mean, for those who aren't up on this concept, locking means I've only ever got one copy of the data, it never changes, and it's protected from changing while something's going on. Mm-hmm. That may not be something as dramatic as an indexing. It may just be that I'm in the middle of an update, so nobody else can update this. Right, and nobody else can see it either. Nobody else can see the right. old data during an update. And this is the entire but, table we're talking about. Oh, well, well row by row. It SQL Server's okay. done row locking for yeah, quite a while that's right. now. We used to have page locking, then row locking. Yeah, yeah, row locking, or page locking was a while ago. They, can, Long they time do ago. page locking, but the default is row lock. Yep. And up until now, SQL Server has only offered locking in all of their isolation modes. Correct. All, all of the transaction isolation levels use locking until this point. Hmm. Yeah, and snapshot is the exception. Now we finally have versioning. Right. Well, you have two, two of the different versioning isolation levels that correspond to what you would see in a versioning database. Um, Oracle being the most you know famous of the versioning databases. Okay. All right, good. So maybe describe how versioning works in SQL Server. Like what's actually going on when I switch to a snapshot isolation? Great question. Oh, okay. So when you, snap, you change to a snapshot isolation mode, basically what happens is SQL Server starts saving old versions of data in TempDB. And when you read, you read as of, of the last committed transaction or the time you started the transaction. So there's two actually different isolation modes in versioning. Um, these are usually called in versioning databases read committed and serializable. But SQL Server uses those terms for something else. So SQL Server calls those um, uh, statement level snapshot and transaction level snapshot. But the idea is you're always seeing data as of a certain point in time, but it still is consistent. And you don't have to take locks to make that happen. The drawback is, of course, you're saving a whole bunch of extra stuff in TempDB. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and if you let that go on too long, it could get pretty serious. But if you're letting that go on too long, you're probably doing something bad. Well, or you're having a big data warehouse-type job that runs for four hours, and you want to make sure it's consistent as of midnight. I mean, right. that, was the, that was the Oracle DBA's biggest, you know, nightmare was to be woken up by um, snapshot too old or, you know, snapshot has filled up. And um, now that probably would be the, you know, SQL Server versioning person's biggest nightmare to see TempDB fill, fill up. In either of those right. cases, pretty much the, you know, the database is going to stop. Hmm. Yeah, when TempDB fills up, it's better to just take no more transactions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're you are in a painful spot at that point, and you know we've been bitten. Beginners with SQL Server get caught by TempDB quite often because they forget or aren't aware that TempDB is used by all sorts of things inside of SQL Server. You oh, run yeah. a great big aggregate join; it's using TempDB as its scratch pad, and if you haven't given enough room, the query is going to fail. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And people say it's sort of worse to have it in TempDB than to have it where Oracle has it, which is a rollback segment. They call it rollback segment or rollback database. Mm-hmm. But in Oracle, if the rollback segment fills up, things stop, too. So, same premise. Same problem. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you picked that as your number one reason. That's a pretty huge reason. And I know it's hard to pick one. So, go ahead. Tell me, the, tell me as many things about SQL Server 2005 as you really like. 
Well, the glitzy ones that everybody has heard of, in fact, the ones I thought we were going to talk about today before we started on that one was um, SQL CLR, the ability to run CLR inside of SQL Server and XML, the ability to have an XML data type and do XML queries and web services and all sorts of XML type stuff in SQL Server. But there's also the service broker, which is a service-oriented queuing system that lives in SQL Server. Right. That's sort of a sneaky one, too. Um, people haven't really heard of that as much as the, you know, the SQL CLR or the XML. There's also a ton of security enhancements in SQL Server, including encryption, data encryption, and, and certificate-based um, you know, encryption, things like that. Mm. So there's, there's quite a bit of everything in this version of SQL Server, which is why it took you know, five years to come out. Right. People wonder why it, well, people wonder why it took five years to come out, and when you see the list of you know features in it, it's just amazing. And I'm not even talking about the the you know analysis services stuff or right. the complete rewrite of DTS into integration services or the the rewrite you know the the enhancements to reporting services that are in this release. So I'm just talking about the database engine itself. So let's talk about SQL CLR. We haven't talked about that uh, with anyone on the show in quite a while. Oh. And we talked about it more before SQL came out than after. So so you've obviously done a lot of work with this. Um, you know, tell us what's cool about this. And okay. we'll talk about the pitfalls later, but tell us what's cool about it. Okay. Well, what's cool about it mostly is it runs in process. Most databases will have um, the ability to call either .NET code or Java code, but that code usually runs out of process. And the problem with that is if you're going to run the code out of process, you might as well have the code run in a web server as yep. run inside, you know, or pretend it runs inside the database. Um, so SQL Server is sort of unique in having that code run inside the database. That does mean that they had to do a lot of extra work to make sure that the code doesn't hurt the database. Right. And in fact, they re-architected the whole um, interaction between the database and the underlying operating system. It's called SQL OS. So one of the reasons, but not the only one, for SQL OS was to integrate all of the .NET resources with the SQL resources. So it's not like you're running two things that compete with each other. They're right. two things that work in conjunction with each other. Yeah, that had to be a huge, huge issue for them. They have to retrofit these two things together. I, yeah, I think it's quite amazing that they got the framework into SQL Server. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, it'll be interesting to see how they proceed with it going forward to see if, for example, things like the Windows Communication Foundation and the Windows Workflow Foundation could conceivably run either partially or in conjunction with right. SQL Server. Yeah, yeah, and and there's there's you know there's gotta have to be something that doesn't work coming down the pike. It's gonna oh, have well, to be. I mean, how can you know they possibly? Uh, it's their job to think that far out. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of potential combinations of technologies that could go to work there. Oh sure. What kind of code would you like to run in inside SQL Server? Well, there's code that you should run in SQL Server, and there's code that you could run in SQL Server, and there's code that you really shouldn't run in <laughs> SQL Server. <laughs> so there's, there's some of each. And the one that sort of causes the most contention is the discussion over um, whether or not you should run stuff that's considered business logic inside of a database. Yep. And I think that one's particularly funny. Um, in 1997, I taught MTS to a whole bunch of people around the, around the world. And when I taught MTS to people, I was trying to tell them to move stuff out of the database and into the middle tier. Right. And at that point in time, I was told in no uncertain terms by a lot of people that that logic actually belonged inside the database and stored procedures, and it was really a really silly idea 
to move it into the middle tier. Yeah. So I, I took that and went on and, you know, things, things sort of evolved a little bit. And now it seems like people, in fact, these same people, some of them are telling me that this stuff has no business being in a stored procedure. This stuff should be in the middle tier. Mm-hmm. So the thing about um, MTS and COM was that it, you could run stuff in MTS, but you couldn't really run COM components inside of SQL Server. So if you wanted to move stuff out to the middle tier, that was your only choice. Um, right. You obviously can't run Transact SQL in an application server someplace. So there was, you sort of had to make a choice of where the code ran one way or the other. The nice thing about CLR is you can fight with me either way and have your way. Sure. If you really want to run that code in the middle tier, you take the CLR code, you tweak it a little bit, and you move it out to the middle tier. If you want to run the code in a database, you tweak it a little bit and move it into the database. That's that, that tweak of, it a little bit that has, that raises eyebrows, though, right? I mean, how well, much tweaking tweak do you have to do? tweak it a little bit consists of the fact that they made some changes after beta 2 so that when you access data inside the database, you access it with the SQL client provider, but using a special connection string. And the special connection string just means to SQL or means to the provider, I'm inside the database. And therefore, you don't really change much of your code to run inside or outside the database. There are things that are different, of course. You wouldn't, for example, from a client, like push back a row set to someone else. Right. Whereas you would do that if you were running a stored procedure. And you obviously wouldn't pop up a Windows form in a yeah, stored absolutely. procedure. absolutely. Inside of a... And, and, you know, you wouldn't do that really in a middle tier, though, either. Right. But all the code that you would be able to run in a middle tier is completely... Is it is it is it .NET 2.0? Yeah, it's .NET 2.0. Has to be .NET 2.0 to run, you know, in in SQL Server in the first place. Okay, so there isn't going to be any compatibility issues. In other well, words, well, there'll be a compatibility issue when the next version of .NET comes out. Oh, sure, but and I mean the, between yeah. bet- between say ASP.NET, if you're running ASP.NET on the same box, for example, you're not going to oh, have any. Oh no, they, you know, you you that's the that's the nice thing about any of the virtual, you know type architectures is that you right. can have multiple versions of the same thing run at the same time. Sure. Are we going to be able to update the framework inside of SQL Server the same way we updated in, in Windows? Ooh, good question. Yeah, basically, the original thought was that they were going to only have SQL Server be running with the versions of the framework that it was tested with. And it was, right. for example, if you got a service pack against the framework, that SQL Server wouldn't necessarily use it. However, right before the shipping date, or, you know, a little bit before, they decided that really what would happen is SQL Server would load the latest version of the framework that you had on your machine. Therefore, any framework changes have to be tested against SQL Server, just like they have to be tested against something else. If you were to put a new framework on there, SQL Server immediately gets it. Okay. And it's totally automatic. You don't have to do anything. You patch the framework on that SQL Server machine, SQL Server's got it. Right. Right, SQL Server is going to look for the latest version of the framework. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is, but it's it it is kind of scary because then you're you are doing framework changes and conceivably SQL changes in you know in conjunction with each other. They better work. What are some yeah. of the What are some of the things that you've done in the middle tier in an extended store procedure that to you make lots of sense for them to be there? Well, so here's the canonical example when I actually had to do a talk on. Um, what should run in the middle tier and, and what should or what should run in CLR and what should run in Transact SQL. The folks on the SQL team gave me this algorithm that they had been working on, this this process that they'd been working on, 
called um, the Wagner-Witten algorithm, or I think it's Witten-Wagner. Somebody wrote me that said it was Witten-Wagner, and I got it backwards. Is that Greg so Witten? The, the Witten-Wagner algorithm. And the Witten-Wagner algorithm does production scheduling for manufacturing resource planning systems. And basically, it does a ton of data access. It takes all of the information about the previous quarters, for example, sales information, and puts that together with information about how long things, you know, how long the shelf life of things are, and figures out how much to produce for the next quarter. So it's a it's a projection type algorithm that requires a lot of data, but it also uses multi-dimensional arrays. So that's something that you is difficult to do in Transact SQL. So, yeah. so they gave me this code that ran either on the middle tier, and they actually had a client-side version of the code, a DLL, or as a CLR proc, or as a Transact SQL procedure. And that code runs on the middle tier, depending on how far away the middle tier is to SQL Server, in about the same amount of time that it runs in SQL Server. And that amount of time is about 10 seconds in their test. Mm. However, written in Transact SQL, that stuff runs, on my machine at least, someplace between two and three hours. Wow. Now, wow. Yeah. And this is code that does data access. So usually people think of using the CLR, and I've always said to people use the CLR, with code that doesn't do any data access or accesses things outside SQL Server, stuff you'd usually do in extended stored procedures. Hmm. But this is a real stored procedure that you do not that. Now, I thought this was some kind of a contrived example that they thought up to give me, but my wife used to work on manufacturing resource planning type system as a DBA, hmm. and so I asked her, had she ever heard of this algorithm? And she said, oh, yeah, we do production scheduling all the time. And I said, where do you do it? And she said, well, we draw out all the data and we push it across the network into a middle tier machine, and we do it there. And I said, about how long does that take? And she said, well, the whole algorithm only takes about an hour and a half to run, huh. but it takes an hour and a half to push the data each way. Oh, wow. <laughs> right, of course. Especially if you're dealing with a lot of data. Yeah. yeah. Now, that may, you know, take processing power away from things as you're doing it in SQL Server. But to be able to do that in nine seconds rather than four and a half hours or nine seconds rather than, you know, three hours and nine seconds is a big deal. That's a huge deal. Yeah, so I think the big thing that happens when you're down to that kind of time is now you can be experimental with those projections rather than just running it once. Right. And the thing that's nice, too, is if you do get a different machine configuration, you don't have to run it one place or another. You can't run Transact SQL in the middle tier, but you can run CLR in the middle tier. Hmm. And you can't usually run COM code in SQL Server, but now you can run CLR code in SQL Server and it's safe. And this was an application that ran in, in completely in safe mode. It wasn't any of this unsafe stuff or we're going to go out to the file system or anything like that. So that was the that was the example that they gave me as sort of what turned my head around as far as what could run and what should run and what shouldn't run. Right. And you can choose in this case. You don't have to say one thing or another. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And the, the bottom line here is we're dealing with a chunk of math complicated enough that it doesn't make sense to try and write in trans-sequel, but so data-dependent 
that trying to take it away from trans at sequel makes it impo- too slow to use. It sounds like the financial services sector could really use this kind of stuff. Yeah. So what I tell people when they say, for, first of all, the people that say that, oh, now we have CLR, I'm going to rewrite all my stuff in CLR. Those people are scary, right? The first, question, <laughs> the first statement out of my mouth when I hear that is, why? Why would you ever write something in, in, over in .NET code when it works perfectly fine in Transact SQL? And then there were the other set of people that said, you know, this CLR stuff is nice, and I'm, I'm happy you've been teaching it to us for a day, but I'm really glad to get back to something real again. I would never hmm. use this stuff. Hmm. And, you know, the, I got actually mail from somebody who had told me that at one point in time about two or three weeks later that said, Dear Bob, I'm the person that told you that CLR was completely useless. We were in a lab, and we just decided just for the hell of it to rewrite one of our stored procedures in .NET code to see if it ran any faster. And we wrote the one, we took the one with the most calculations in it, and the one with the most calculations ran four times faster in CLR. And we just wanted to tell you that this happened because we were the folks that told you it was useless. Now, I wouldn't, you know... (laughs) I wouldn't rewrite everything in CLR. That's a silly thing to do. Transact SQL is meant for most of the stuff that it's used for. But the idea is to start by taking the most, you know, the most formula-centric, mathematic-centric thing that you have and see if that's worthwhile to write in CLR. And if it isn't worthwhile, if the, the performance gain isn't worth it, then you're done. You know, there's no going yeah. any further. And I guess the other caveat on that is it should be slow enough that you care about its speed. Sure, or something that you run a million times a second. Yeah, right. So, or would like to. Yeah, so take that, see if it runs in CLR. If it doesn't, you're done. I mean, you don't have to, to do everything or nothing. And then, you know, you can go from there to find the sweet spot where it's not really worth the hassle to convert everything, or Transact SQL does this better. Transact SQL does most data access stuff much better than CLR. Yeah. And the the place where I would start, which it would be the uh, user-defined scale or user-defined functions that are just mathematics, there's no reason to write those you right. know, in Transact SQL when you can write them in a compiled language. Yeah, they may even Absolutely. already exist in some yeah. library somewhere. But that now you can call them. Yeah. Now, having said that, I've because I've said that, gotten the reputation of being one of the most CLR-centric bigots around. <laughs> but I'm not saying that people <laughs> write stuff in CLR all the time. It's just a silly thing. For example, when you write data access code in CLR code, it turns out that the data access code behaves, for security reasons, exactly the same way Dynamic SQL would behave. So if you wrote stored procedures to keep from giving people access to the underlying tables, if you write those in CLR, you have to give people access to the underlying tables. Or you oh, that's to, interesting. Yeah. Or you have to use the new execute as to have it execute as the owner, and that has its own set of repercussions that you have to think about. So it's not for everything. I had not thought about the fact that execute as would be the solution to that privileges problem in the CLR. I mean, it makes sense to me that because you don't know what the CLR could do, it could do anything. Mm-hmm. For safety's sake, Microsoft has deprived the CLR of that blanket privilege that stored procedures normally have to do whatever they want. All you need is rights to store procedure, and all other rights are implicit. Well, the, the ownership chains work that way. Yeah, the ownership right. chains don't check ownership if the person who owns the stored procedure and the person who owns the table are the same person. Right. But the rest of it, I mean, you know, you wouldn't, for example, use a stored procedure to access 
things outside of the database. Hmm. Yeah. So that's but you certainly would use a CLR for that. Oh yeah, that was that's always been the province of extended stored procedure. And I was fairly surprised about halfway between beta 2 and the release of SQL Server when I went into the books online and saw extended stored procedures are deprecated. They might not be supported in future versions of SQL Server. Use the CLR instead. That's the thing that people usually think of when they use the think of the CLR is a safer extended stored procedure. Yeah. But it's that's not the only thing it could be used for. What are the uh, you mentioned that execute as has some ramifications around it. I'm I think execute as is a fascinating potential tool. What are the problems that come out of that? Oh, there are people that think that execute as is just the work of the devil. Um, <laughs> execute, <laughs> well, I, I know of one in particular that you know may or may not ever listen to this, but yeah, he's he's written quite a bit on the the pitfalls of execute as, and it's funny because the idea of an ownership chain where if the person owns the stored procedure and the table are the same, they don't check ownership, is a SQL Server and Sybase specific thing. The idea of executing a procedure as the caller of the stored procedure, and when you actually have to check ownership, checking against the caller, is something that's foreign to, say, Oracle and DB2. Those guys execute things as the owner of the stored procedure all the time. The problem that people have with execute as is you are really giving away your identity. A lot of auditors are auditing products, audit things by actually auditing the suser underscore name, and that's going to reflect the name of the person who the procedure is running as. So the SQL Server folks actually put in a different way to audit, but you have to know to audit that way, which is to audit by login ID. Uh-huh. So people that, you know, people that say, oh, you're giving away your identity, well, you're really not, but you are if you look at it the old way. Right. And execute as does have some interesting repercussions when you try and use that with respect to, for example, file privileges. Um, if you try and do an execute as with a file, it may not come out the way you want either. So, but execute as is a way to get around that, but I wouldn't, you know, necessarily say it's the, you know, panacea for everything either. But the idea here is that the CLR needs to have certain privileges to work on the database. And so uh, rather than grant them all to the users or to the application, give them actual table level access, you want to have an ability inside of that CLR call to say, I'm going to temporarily escalate my rights so that I now have the rights to the tables to do the work I need to do, and then I'll de-escalate them later. Yeah, and that word there, the phrase that you use, temporarily escalate your rights, waves a whole bunch of red flags with auditors and security consultants and DBAs around the world. They hear that and they say, how do I turn this off? Right? <laughs> that's the, that's <laughs> Leave the, the CLR <laughs> off. Yeah, well, that's the big thing that I used to hear all the time with CLR and actually sometimes with XML is this is a nice feature. It's not for me. How do I turn this off? And now I can tell those people, well, you know, it is off by default. You don't have to turn the CLR off if you want it off. It's, it's not there. It's a feature that you sort of can use if you want to. I always divide the SQL Server 2005 features up into features that you can ignore and features that you can't ignore. For example, one of the features that you can't ignore is the fact that SQL Server 2005 does statement-level recompilation now, not procedure-level recompilation, or that the optimizer works a little differently in this version of SQL Server. But stuff like XML, CLR, in fact, any of the new Transact SQL routines as well, you can ignore those if you don't need them. They're there as enhancements for you. You don't have to, you're not forced to use them. 
but you can't ignore the fact that it does statement level recompilation now. That's a difference that, you know, you're not going to be able to turn off or on with a switch. What are the ramifications of statement level compilation? Statement level recompilation is a good, um, good thing because when SQL Server had to recompile things before, they always recompiled at a procedure level. So, for example, if you had a temporary table, you, would, you could conceivably do a lot of recompilations. And every time SQL Server recompiled things, in other words, thought up new query plans for things, it would think up new query plans for every statement in the stored procedure. So if you had 50 statements, it would recompile all 50. Hmm. In this version of SQL Server, they recompile on a statement basis. And so what that means is that people that did all kinds of tricks, like having seven nested levels of stored procedures so that each one could contain one statement, they don't have to do that anymore. I see. So it's nice for that reason, but it also changed the fact that people that did a lot of tricks you know, now don't have to do them. Bob, are there any issues around com interop and calling com objects from SQL CLR? Well, calling com objects is not necessarily a good idea because the CLR is completely integrated itself into um, SQL Server. So all the memory allocations the CLR does are tracked by SQL Server. All the threads that CLR uses are SQL Server threads and so forth. Com is completely foreign to SQL Server. And so when you're doing that, you are running two things that run in the same process sort of against each other. Yeah. SQL, SQL Server keeps no track of COM stuff. And conceivably, you could leak memory with COM or do other nasty things with COM that you couldn't ever do with CLR. Well, so all of the protection that, this, that has been put into the CLR to stop these things from happening would be circumvented to if you started making COM calls through the interop layer that said, in SQL CLR. That said, you, you must come across people who have no choice but to do that. Yeah, that's true. But if they do do that, the better thing for them to do is conceivably to try and convert the stuff that they're calling to CLR yeah. and use the safe libraries. And when they do that, then they're going to get much better safety, and much better integration with the, with the SQL Server. Good. So, short answer, don't do it. If you're going to do it, <laughs> yeah, think that about, might be think another about on the On the deprecation list is SPOA create, although I'm not sure if it is yet or not, the ability to create COM objects from, you know, from SQL Server directly. What about uh, calling web services? You can call web services. For that matter... Doing anything asynchronously has got to be on the don't-do list, I would imagine. Well, SQL Server didn't used to allow you to do things asynchronously, and you know people would do crazy things like have their own thread pool that ran inside a SQL Server against yeah. other, you know, against SQL Server's thread pool. You don't have to do that anymore either. If you want asynchronous execution, there's a built-in place for it called Service Broker. And you can program Service Broker. It's a messaging system. I see. You can program Service Broker with .NET code. You can program it with Transact SQL code. You can program it however you like. In fact, I sort of like to think of Service Broker as a SQL Server-specific but better version of web services, more robust version of web services. Better and, is, a, yeah. is a value judgment. Well, the Service Broker isn't just web services. As you said, it's, it's for doing anything async. I would say it's a replacement for the asynchronous model. In the uh, in the CLR, sure. Isn't it sort of MSMQ ish? Yeah, well, it does some of the things that MSMQ does. In fact, I, it's funny. I just did a talk about Service Broker today, and somebody asked about what was the difference between Service Broker and MSMQ. So MSMQ has three modes that it can operate in: Express Delivery mode, where the messages are kept in memory; 
or the mode where the messages are not transactional, but they are stored on disk, or transactional messages. Service Broker only does transactional messages. That's all it does. But what it right. does, it does really well. So its transactional messages are a lot faster than MSMQ's transactional messages. And if you want to use messaging in conjunction with a database, which a lot of people do, I would say quite a lot of people do, yeah. if you're using MSMQ, you're using a distributed transaction. Whereas if you're right. using Service Broker, you're using local transaction. So and Why pay the you know, price of distributed transactions if you don't actually need to? Right. But if you don't lean reliable messaging, it's, if it's perfectly fine to drop a message here and there, and that's not as outrageous as it seemed. I worked on an MSMQ product where they, project where they could do that. Um, then MSMQ is perfectly fine, runs faster in that mode than Service Broker would, and is a really good choice. What if you need to use something that is already asynchronous, um, such as a web service uh, or, or um, a remote call or something like that that's going to provide a callback? You know, a store procedure is something that runs and returns a result. It's, it's sort of static and synchronous in nature. Um, without using Service Broker, is there a way to, to use the asynchronous model, the callback model? In other words, can you have these objects sitting out there uh, in memory just uh, handling callbacks? Well, it's not a good idea to have a whole bunch of objects sitting out in memory in SQL Server because those things take up memory. Sure. And they're taking up memory that could be used by, for example, memory bu or you know data buffers, something like that. Okay. But if you do that, what you're going to do is just conceivably at the time that you're waiting, give up control to the rest of SQL Server, right. which is a good thing to do anyway. But SQL Server expressly forbids you from starting up your own threads except in... Um, Sorry, except in unsafe mode. So it's not something that you would do, but to call something that's a long-running thing like web service may not be the best thing to do either for scalability reasons. But it, you can do yeah. it if you absolutely feel the requirement to. And I can't see much reason why you wouldn't use Service Broker for that. Well, Service Broker only talks between SQL servers. Well, I'm, sa I'm, I'm saying in the situation, Richard, where you have, you have a middle tier with an asynchronous model that's already working, or you have you not maybe not a middle tier object, but you know some some library that you've written some DLL. You've got a you've got an asynchronous method. You've got callbacks. They need to be you need to have a place to plop those things. So, yeah, SQL Server wouldn't really be good good idea for that because you'd be using up a whole bunch of threads that could be used for other things. Sure. If you're actually going to do that with more than one person at a time, SQL Server has a limited you know or tries to limit the number of threads that are sort of running around, and right. that would sort of block threads that SQL Server could use for something so else. So I guess it's like a common sense thing. If you find you're bumping up against the limits of what the SQL CLR was meant to do, maybe it doesn't belong there. <laughs> sure. For example, there, there are people that have started to use CLR to produce big data sets in the SQL Server's memory, yeah. and they find themselves running out of memory real quick. And SQL Server will just end your end your uh, transaction if yeah. you're using CLR if it can't get the memory allocation it needs. Yeah, I would I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, also because the lock manager is cognizant now of memory and cognizant of threads, it's conceivable that you could get a deadlock that happens because both both people are waiting for, for example, memory allocation. I was fairly shocked to look into the books online and you know have listed in this this time's books online a whole bunch of reasons for deadlocks other than just data row locks. In 2000, right. the only one they talked about was data row locks. 
in 2005, they talk about memory deadlocks and thread deadlocks and, you know, parallelism deadlocks and even deadlocks due to this feature called Mars. So, you know, we went from having one type of deadlock that we could have, maybe two, the parallelism deadlocks are always considered a sort of a bug, to five or six different kinds of deadlocks we can have. So if you're going to do this stuff, you sort of have to be real careful about it and pick your spots. It seems to me we're walking towards SQL Server as an application server with Service Broker and the CLR and all this increased functionality. And we could put everything there now. Ooh, you said the yeah. magic A word, yeah. right? <laughs> in, in the first part of the Ascend program, I was specifically told, you know, they didn't tell me what to say, but I was specifically guided away from using the A word because it would sort of scare off DBAs, right? The DBAs have been used to dealing with something that its only purpose in life is to serve data. And now you're right. going to make it an application server and complicate everything. And maybe all that stuff doesn't belong in store procedures. All of a sudden, they're big middle-tier fans, right? Because they don't want to you know, <laughs> try and manage all that stuff at the same time. It complicates their job by orders of magnitude. Right. But conceivably, you could use SQL Server without any data even in it as a substrate for building that kind of application, as a, as a cheap application server, basically put an instance of SQL Express out there and, and have it run Service Broker to run messages back and forth. Hmm. You know, something like that. And you've got a data store. You've got some language to work with. If you need to write some complicated code, there's a CLR. You have all these mechanisms available to you. I mean, it seems almost very BizTalk-like, actually. Mm, well, BizTalk is an application more than a substrate for building applications. All the stuff in SQL Server really is a substrate for building applications rather than the applications themselves, just like a database right. is. I mean, nobody nobody would build an application that just used a database and nothing else, right? When I I, I have classes that people people get upset because um, they have both data access and database in them, and I say, do your users usually access your application by using Query Analyzer? Is that their API to the application? How many people do that? <laughs> so you know, data access APIs are one of the you know one of the things that you have to think of when you think of any database application. But Service Broker is not BizTalk either. Service Broker is sort of more of a closer to a BizTalk channel than BizTalk. And Service right. Broker is not trying to be Indigo either. Service Broker, they, they're working on apparently a Service Broker to Indigo channel, apparently it was a Service Broker channel for Indigo. It was actually shown, I guess, at one of the PDCs or something but it's not meant to do all of the things that Indigo does, nor is it meant to do all the things that BizTalk does. You could conceivably build it, but why build it from scratch when you can buy it? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it makes sense now. Service Broker is this one, it's a little bit of MSMQ and a little bit of BizTalk, even a little bit of Indigo, this one channel that is good at transactional messaging, and that's mm -hmm. all. Yep. Because that's what it's for. Yep, exactly. And And you can... I suppose, try and shoehorn it into everything else. But why bother when you have all those other products to use as well? Yeah, right. And, and as soon as you go broker, outside of that one skill, you want to use one of the other tools. Sure. And Service Broker only talks to SQL Server, too. So if I had, right. for example, a, a, an application that needed to use SQL Server and Oracle, for example, there was no way that I could communicate with Service Broker without some kind of intermediate layer in there. Exactly. So it's not a, a be-all and end-all of everything. But what it does, it does completely well. In fact, 
one of the nice things that they had, did with Service Broker was they re-architected the mail system inside SQL Server. It used to be if you went to send a mail message in a stored procedure and the mail server was down, you'd wait until the mail server came back up to finish that stored procedure. Mm-hmm. What they did was re- they rewrote the mail system. It's called database mail rather than um, the old mail system. SQL mail? Used to, SQL mail, yeah. Database mail right. rather than SQL mail. And database mail uses Service Broker. So not only can you send mail and just sort of fire and forget, and Service Broker will take care of it for you, but you can actually make that mail message a transactional part of your or part of your transaction. How um how easy is it to set up a Service Broker and to use it? I mean, what are we looking at code wise? Well, that's the interesting thing. I just did a thing on, or I just did a, a TechNet webcast today on setting up Service Broker and the operational considerations behind Service Broker. And Service Broker security, especially, is kind of difficult to set up. It's non-trivial to set up. But security aside, you're setting up, um, you know, messages, message types, and contracts. And you don't even have to have message types and contracts. They have default ones of those. Mm -hmm. But you're basically setting up services and queues. It's when you use it to communicate either outside of your database or outside of your instance that you have to be the most worried about security. And in that case, setting up the security is non-trivial. But there are people in the service broker team and people even outside the service broker team that are working on making that easier. For example, there's a man named Jesus Rodriguez that works for a company in um, Florida that actually put out something to be able to deploy service broker apps and then reconstruct them in other machines Hmm. using UDDI, which I thought was Hmm. pretty interesting. Use UDDI for that. Yeah, yeah. Because goodness knows nobody else, they're not using it for anything else. (laughs) I was going to say. Well, he put out a whole bunch of those tools. He also put out a service broker channel into BizTalk. So you could route messages directly into BizTalk. I believe he's Hmm. a BizTalk MVP. Or put out a service broker task for SQL Server integration services. And so a lot of interesting little components that he put out. So it doesn't take very much code is what you're saying. Well, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot to set up a simple service broker application. Yeah. It takes a little more to set up a complex um, service broker sure. application. But, you know, another thing that service broker is used for is to notify people of events, um, database administrators specifically. So I think the database administrators are to be getting more into that or they will whether they want to or not. Yeah. You can, for example, have service broker catch events that are usually caught by um, SQL Trace or SQL Profiler. You can have service right. broker mm. catch DDL events. So a lot of nice mm. things there for the database administrator, too. Very good. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Bob, where are you located? Oh, I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm, I'm finally home now for a while. The last two years have sort of been this um, blur of people and places and really nice places everywhere, but teaching SQL Server. And I'm sort of a little bit more um, home these days. I've been working with SQL Skills since about September. And since then, my sort of my travel workload or my travel load has sort of gone down quite a bit. In fact, um, we're just starting in SQL Skills something that I think is pretty exciting, which is that Kimberly and I will be doing events together. 
Um, we'll be doing the events where she'll have a bunch of people in a room and do some topics, and I'll have a bunch of people in a room and do other topics. Hmm. And then we'll swap off when we get to topics that are you know relevant to the other group of people. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to those. Those are coming up. That sounds and great. Also we... have that book coming out soon, so that'll be you know that'll be fun to see if, how how well that does too. And we can find these at SQLSkills.com. The um, yeah www.sqlskills.com website. And in fact, you can go up and sign up for to be notified when those things happen. And what we're going to try and do is give bigger discounts or first shot to the people that have actually signed up. And we promise not to spam you too much um, <laughs> with, you know, free off. You know, I, I really hate signing up to places that send yeah. a lot of spam. Yeah. But if, you know, it's just a few notifications about things that are going on, that's okay. If I don't want those, I can delete them. You also, I mean, I do that, right, at Franklin's Net, but I, I always feel you got to give them some content too. You got to give them something, something that you're thinking about, something you're working on, something that'll save them some time. Yeah. And that's what our blogs are about too. Yeah. I've had blog on SQL Server 2005 since I started teaching it, which was, or since I started working with it, which was 2003. Now, some of the things I couldn't say about it now, now I can, but they've always been little hints and tricks and things that people didn't know about SQL 2005. Like I, I sort of got the impression some of those things that I said were things that sort of astounded you guys, too. That, oh, I didn't know SQL Server did that. Or I'd heard of this. I wondered what it did. It doesn't take much to astound <laughs> me with SQL Server. Really? I don't Richard, know. I I'm not so you, sure. I remember you being a pretty good database programmer. Yeah, I was. I just haven't done it in quite a while. So Yeah, well, like anything else. But yeah, I, I remember when you were you were doing that. Yep. I had my day. Yep. <laughs> Richard, on the other hand... It dabbles in it every day. Yeah, I hear about well, this. Steve Forte and I have been collaborating on a session that came out of a, a discussion in a hot tub, and I can't remember what country we were in, about that, why the seal... Now, that's just sad. Now, now, come on. <laughs> we were in a hot tub it's, in some country I can't in remember. In some country, I couldn't maybe tell you which Sri one. Maybe it was Sri Lanka. Maybe it was Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> I had a martini. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, this Just is what happens up, to you. We, you work it all the time. <laughs> but we got into the discussion about CLR and whether it was a good idea or not. And one of the things that Steve ran across that got him excited was uh, the ability to pull a query plan in XML. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a that's a totally different feature, but yeah, you can do that. That's something that really should be used sparingly, though, like any kind of query hint. But the idea that if you're one of the, you know, one out of a million pre- people that Service Pack 1 comes out and may make your query run slower, right? They'll make 99% of the queries run faster. And you right. knew what the old query plan was, and you go, how do I get that query plan back? Um, there's something called plan forcing, where you can actually get out the plan in XML format and use that plan as a query hint. Hmm. So the nice thing about having it in XML format, too, is that if you know XML and it doesn't have to be XML in SQL Server, you can analyze it offline. Right. Uh, of course, now SQL Server has great XML handlers, so it was fairly easy to write an X query to pull the important bits of data out of the query plan, like its cost, expected number of rows, even the type of query that the query plan thinks it is. Well, let's talk some more about the XML features in 2005. I know that was on your list of things to talk about. What uh, what what specifically has um, has been piquing your interest in in the XML world? Well, there's XML for developers and there's XML for DBAs. The XML for developers is based upon the fact that this version of SQL Server has a built-in XML data type 
that acts or that goes by most of the standards in the ANSI standard SQL 2003. Um, I'll try that again. That goes by most of the ANSI SQL 2003 standard for XML data type. Mm-hmm. It also has a built-in XQuery language as well, so you can process your languages in XQuery. And since XQuery is a functional superset of XPath, that means if you know XPath but not XQuery, you can use XPath also. And, and you can always drop into the SQL CLR and use the system XML namespace, I'm sure, right? Yeah, conceivably you could do that too. That's one of the namespaces or that's one of the DLLs that has gone through the reliability testing. So all hmm. of those things, unless you go out of process, are safe to do. So when would you use what? Oh, okay. Well, some people like XSLT. They're not big fans of XQuery. They're big fans of XSLT. Yeah. And SQL Server doesn't have any built-in capability to do XSLT and transact SQL. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do XSLT, it's pretty easy to write a five-line program that calls in and call that program as a stored procedure and do transforms right within the database if hmm. that's what you want to do. Hmm. But you'd be doing that through the CLR to do that, right? Right. You would go to the CLR to do that. Another yeah. thing that we did was that the schema support, the XML schema support in SQL Server doesn't support every schema production that there is. And so what we were able to do, or what a cohort of mine, Dan Sullivan, was able to do at one point when we wanted to get the office schemas into SQL Server was to write a stored procedure that just took in a bunch of schemas, ordered the schemas correctly, and did little tweaks to the schemas like take off the um, lax validation, which SQL Server doesn't support in the schemas, and actually, you know, change the schemas a little bit, but enough to get them into SQL Server. And he did that as part of a stored procedure that mm. would just read these files off the file system. Cool. So, yeah, you can you can mix or match those things. Now, there's also XML for DBAs. The best XML for DBA or the best XML for, for analysis of database things feature that I've ever seen is the fact that you can send um, the query plans now to a friend. So... You used to have the graphic Uh, query plan in SQL Server 2000, and the graphic query plan was really cool until you started to talk to somebody over the phone. I see. Then they'd say, send me that. And you'd be sending, like, screenshots, and and finally you'd just give up and send them the the non-graphic query plan, and they'd have to learn to read that. (laughs) Now, in this version of SQL Server, because the query plans are XML, the query plan show stuff is just basically, I think, an XSLT transform. And you can save those query plans out in a format with a .sql plan suffix and send it to a friend in mail. Friend double-clicks on the SQL plan, and it comes up right in SQL Server Management Studio with exactly the same pop-up you know, that's cool. properties and all of that stuff that the original query plan had on your desk. So that's cool. probably the coolest thing, and that's facilitated by the fact that they save those query plans out as XML. Now, what about performance of XML? The performance of XML depends on what you use it for. So if you're using XML to replace relational, that's probably not a good idea. But if you're using XML to be able to, for example, um, look at semi-structured data or using XML for sparse properties in data, that's not a bad idea. And mm-hmm. so it really depends on you know what you're doing with it, just like everything else. I always hate to wimp out and have an answer like, well, it depends. Yeah, but well, it, it does. It really does. Yeah. And there's also structures you can put together in XML that just don't make sense in SQL Server. I mean, there's multidimensional data that you can't write to a table easily, but XML will handle it. Sure. Or things with sparse properties. Like I have a million properties on each element, um, and they're all different. 
in SQL right. Server, if you designed it that way as pure relational, which which you could do, you would have 99% of the rows having null values in that column. Whereas right. if you have it in XML, you could conceivably put in those sparse properties and search for them with XQuery. And by the way, the yep. XQuery engine in SQL Server really uses the relational engine. If you look at a query plan that has SQL and XQuery in it, it just is a regular SQL query plan. They had to add, I think, five new physical operations just to be able to support XQuery, but otherwise, it's a SQL query plan that that thing is executing. Now, so, what if you're spinning out XML from a stored proc? You know, as in other words, instead of writing data-driven, you know, uh, ASP.NET pages that turn into an XML document. What about just making something, you know, making a store procedure that you can call directly from oh, a browser? Well, if you're spitting out XML from a proc, you have two choices now. It used to be that you could only spit out XML in a stream because SQL Server really didn't have any XML data type. So you sent out this thing. In fact, you've probably seen it in Query Analyzer where you do the yeah. select for XML type deal and you get back this nice GUID column ID. Right. And what that GUID actually was was a signal to the client-side APIs that, hey, this isn't any SQL row set here. This is a stream. It sort of looked like a row set in Query Analyzer because that was the only way that Query Analyzer could show it. But it really was a stream. Since this version of SQL Server supports XML data type, you can create, instead of your stream, a one-column, one-row row set if you want to hmm. that has XML. Or you could have a multiple-row row set that has XML in every column. Also, the four XML calls in SQL Server 2005 have been greatly enhanced. I mean, the number of enhancements are just too many to say. And the biggest enhancement is the addition of a new for XML dialect called Select for XML Path that lets you put out a combination of elements and attributes using namespaces using an XPath syntax, XPath-like syntax, um, it within um, you know the column names. Hmm. So that's a pretty interesting feature. If you've ever used XML explicit, mm -hmm. um, XML explicit sort of takes hours to describe. And I remember one of the XML books actually had like three or four chapters on XML explicit. 95% of the queries can be done now really simply with XML path. So really good support for sending out XML to the outside world. And if you really want to get off the edge with this, um, SQL Server supports XML web services directly you can expose anything you want as a web service and actually consume it with SOAP calls. Right. That most makes most people nervous because they think about outside the firewall. I'm not saying yeah. put your SQL server outside the firewall. Sure. Um, but if you, for example, have an IBM mainframe that has a legacy application that runs on it that can consume web services and it's yeah. inside your firewall, it's just as secure to call a SQL server web service inside the firewall as it is to call to port 1433. That's something I I never quite understood. Everybody would would say, you know, if you're inside the firewall, use remoting. If you're outside the firewall, use web services. Turns out web services are not only more uh, easier to do inside or outside the firewall, they're actually more robust, too. So, yeah. Well, it depends on the protocol you're using and the amount of retries you want to do, too. But yeah. yeah, and the type of application. You're turning a lot of data. It just web services are just damn easy. Sure, and yeah. they made the web service so, so so robust inside SQL Server and actually put so many features in it that it emulates sessions if you wanted to do that. You could conceivably wow. write an ADO.NET <laughs> data provider that just talked to SQL Server using HTTP 
if you, if you so really true. like HTTP <laughs> as really, a transport. Yeah, if you really want to bloat <laughs> your data. Yeah. Sure. So any of those things, and, and I'm just probably touching the surface of the XML support in SQL Server. But I, I started off by thinking that XML support was just mostly for developers. And like I said, I've had DBAs that say, how do you turn that off? But just trying right. to enumerate the DBA tools that are now exposed in XML, the big one that I always thought was sort of a nefarious plot was this version of SQL Server has DDL triggers. And in a regular trigger, you can get the inserted and deleted tables to figure out what happens. In a DDL trigger, what do you send to tell people what's happened? So what they right. do is you're they adding a, a piece of... You're adding a column, right? I mean, yeah. that kind of thing. Or you're dropping a table. That's DDL. Can you just right. define, you can you define DDL for our non-DDL aware listeners? Oh, sure. It's data definition language. So okay. create table would be DDL or create view would be DDL. Okay. And so when you want to tell people what have happened in a DDL trigger, there's no standard real format that you can send with columns and rows all the time. So what they did was they sent, they made a system-defined function called event data, and event data returns XML. Now, I thought that was a nefarious plot at first because who's going to be most resistant to using XML? Well, the DBAs. Mm. And who's going to be the ones <laughs> to use DDL triggers all the time? Well, the DBAs. Mm. Mm. And actually wrote a function for the DBAs that basically took the XML apart and made a row set out of it, if that's what they really want. But the idea is that that comes out in XML format. The query plans come out in XML format. Um, the data tuning analyzer uses XML format. Hmm. So pretty much everything that DBAs are going to use is, you know, XML format at this point. Now, that means that it's really good for DBAs or it's really worthwhile for DBAs to learn XML, even if they don't like it at first. Right, just because it's a nice format that everything seems to be coming out in these days, and it'll make their job easier. Is it easy what? to integrate schemas? Into oh, the XM or SQL Server has built-in support for schemas. Okay, so you can put collections of schemas in. That's a that was another interesting story. They started off by putting in one schema. You could put in one schema at a time, and then type a column using one schema. But if you've ever seen a WSDL document. Yeah. There is no way that you could type a yeah. WSDL document with one and only one schema. Right. So what yeah. they did was introduce the concept of schema collections, which are basically just SQL objects like database, like tables or views are, but they actually contain collections of schemas. And then you can use a schema collection to type um, any document that you want to. Very nice. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, when is your book coming out? It's... Um, due to come out around May 1st. It was originally due to come out May 15th. And actually, we thought it would come out a little sooner than that when we first handed in the book. I'm doing this book with a guy named Dan Sullivan that mm -hmm. I used to work with at Developmentor. And Dan's been a really good person to um, have as a co-author as well. But what we did was we were worried about the page count. Um, we had told Addison Wesley we were going to produce about 600-page book. Mm -hmm. And so we were concerned about being able to make the page count so we just sort of went off into lots of depth about every topic we could think of to cover. And one of the reasons why the book is going to be late is because I believe it's someplace now between 1,150 Ugh. and 1,200 pages long. Oh! <laughs> so, yeah. That wasn't where we started, but That's not at a that book. point, we really couldn't figure out how to cut it back in a nice way either. The sequel so, Odyssey. 
Yeah, so it's a lot of material. So the only thing that I can think of that people are going to have a problem with is figuring out how to carry it around. Um, maybe yeah. they will actually put it out on, you know, or have a CD-based version of it sometimes so it'll be easier to carry. Put it in the database, but, man. What? Put it in the database. Yeah, really, put it in the <laughs> database and you can do searches on it. That Search actually would be page. a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's been done with somebody's book once. I forget whose book that was. All right, so we'll have a words table. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> so put it in there so you can search it with full text search, right? I'm sensitive yeah. to over normalization. So <laughs> I live through normalization table, table normalization yeah. hell. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, one of my problems with books has always been that you can't search on them. And right. it would be yeah. really nice to have the thing in a searchable format. But anyway, it's coming out about May 1st, and it'll be about 1,150 pages. Good God, So man. people thought they read everything in our last book, the the first look at SQL Server 2005. We sort of went overboard in this book. Where do you get your coffee? Actually, uh, I start with a couple of big cups of coffee every morning. You Do you get it out, like Starbucks or Seattle's Best or any place? Oh, no. You actually buy stuff and, and make it at home, and do my you... wife makes it way too strong. Just probably why I'm talking this fast right now. Do you like have a French press and roast your own beans? Are you that oh, nuts or? No, we're not that much into it. We have like a Mr. Coffee and we just, you know, I do it up every, every morning. <laughs> but I'll come in with this huge cup of coffee. And that's sort of one of the things that I do miss while I'm on the road is to have really nice cup of coffee every yeah. morning. I, I usually have the coffee wherever I am. Yeah. I, you <laughs> notice I didn't ask him, Richard, do you drink coffee? The guy wrote a 1,200-page freaking book. He obviously drinks coffee, right? <laughs> well, Dan and I wrote it, right? Dan, Dan did write, write half. I, know, I, didn't I think mean he to, wrote just a little less than half, but that, yeah, that's the take, idea. Yeah, I didn't mean to take credit away from Dan. Yeah, yeah. Book writing is, is kind of interesting, and I'm not sure I'll be doing a lot more of it either because it's a lot of work. The it reason is. why I wrote this book mainly was because I could then get one early access to the bits and to the ability to write a class on it. So that was the nice thing is that I got to write the class. Speaking of classes, when's your next class? My next class is actually yeah. going to be next two weeks from now in India. I'll be in India for two weeks. Do you have public classes or do you, are you mostly doing on-sites on we demand? We mostly do private classes, but we are going to start to offer public classes real soon. Okay. Um, you can look up on the SQL Skills website. When we finally get things together, we might have a little bit of website reorganization too. Um, we're going to have some public classes that we offer. But we've normally offered these things called immersion events, which are these trainings. It's, immersion is a pretty good name for it, too, where you're sort of immersed in the SQL Server for as long as you can stand it. And that's the events that we're going to start to do together is the um, immersion events. So we're going to have immersion events and probably some public courses, too. Okay. Hey, maybe you could consider doing a class in New London. Yeah, that would be cool. Have New London, where? Connecticut. East Coast. Oh, really? That's where I'm from. You're from I'm Connecticut. I'm not from New London, but I'm from Connecticut. Where in Connecticut? Well, I originally was born in Norwalk, but I lived most of my life around the Hartford area. Oh, no kidding. Yep. Before I started, it was before working, and then I went to work in Boston for a while, and then moved out to Seattle, and then moved out to Portland. I've lived in Portland since about 1981. But yeah, the first half of my life was spent in Connecticut. Is Excellent. That, that, so that's where you're located, I take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that's where we are. Oh, interesting. Well, Bob, uh, any last-minute words of advice or wisdom or anything else you want to promote, maybe? 
No, I don't have any. I'm I'm not really great at gratuitous self promotion, and that was probably about as much as gratuitous self promotion as I could do. Um, and as far as as far as words of wisdom, I don't really consider myself all that wise either, right? Oh well, you'd People be surprised. People are not follow anything I do. All I do is provide information. Like I used to say when I showed up at conferences to do talks, I'm here to be the technical entertainment. So you know, just sit back and listen to something technical and ask any question you want no matter how off the wall it seems. Well, you have the true mark of a, uh, of a good technologist, which is you don't let your ego get in the way of your work, which is great. Well, I try not to. Yeah. And he says, what ego? Yeah. All right, Bob. I'm glad uh, glad you were on the show. Richard, thanks for uh, asking the majority of the questions and the simple oh, well, topics. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. It was really fun. Excellent. And we'll talk to you, the listeners, next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a-